Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. You have a Bible. Uh, You can turn with me, if you desire, to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. It's been a good week, amen? It's been a really good week. You can see here by my socks, I'm remaining faithful. Uh, Being a volunteer fan has helped me be a believer in Jesus. Because you have to have trust in that which you can never see. And uh, and, uh, so we had just a mess on Rocky Top this week. But we hired OA, the number 4 AD in the nation, Danny White. From our Central Florida, University of Central Florida. You remember a couple years ago when they claimed the national championship, even though they didn't get to play in it? And uh, he was the one behind all of that. But uh, we're just praying. We're just fasting. We took our fast into another week for the greatest head coaching search. Uh, Also really good because I got to meet a new friend this week. I met a a brand new friend via FaceTime. His name is Emmett Simons. He's awesome. And uh, it was great to meet him. So Taylor and Chandler had their baby. And uh, we're going to have a whole lot more babies coming in the next few weeks. So praise God for that. But I hope you had an amazing, amazing week. I want to uh, share today from one single teaching text, one teaching text. I want to welcome those that are streaming live. Let me just go ahead and say, Pastor Chad mentioned about Financial Peace University. You'll see that slide uh, that has the details on it. I believe they have that. Yeah, so it's coming up on February 22nd through the 19th of April. It'll be every Monday night from 7 until 8.30, and uh, you can get... Um, information. Then also, uh, you probably heard in the 411 as well, if you want to hit that next slide, uh, we're going to make live this week uh, the opportunity for registration for our Black Tie Fair. And so we're very, very thrilled and excited about this event again coming up in the month of February. Matthew chapter 5 is where our teaching text comes from today. Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to read one verse. Blessed are the peacemakers... For they will be called children of God. We're in a series right now called 167, honoring God with every hour of our week, right? In addition to the hour that we spend together in worship corporately, we're asking God to teach us, the teacher to teach us as learners, as disciples, that we might be trained in the way that he desires us to be trained, to honor him in every way, in every way. Let me read it one more time. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called children of God. So I'm going to pray. Before I pray, I'm going to ask you to pray for me. I'm going to pray for you. Um, Just pray that uh, I uh, continue to heal and get better and better. So I've never never, uh, necessarily preached with this much brain fog, and so it's easy to get really insecure. And uh, you pray for me. I'm going to pray for you. And uh, I am COVID negative, so you can drop your arms. I'm good. I've been to the doctor. I just have lingering symptoms. And uh, just pray that I get complete healing and that God continues to heal this congregation, preserve this congregation as we navigate the next few months. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. That God, your love is never ending. God, you said with loving kindness, you've drawn us unto yourself. And today, Lord, we honor you and we praise you. We thank you for the opportunity to come around the word of God, to study the word of God. And Lord, when we study the word of God, we know that thereby our lives are changed. I pray we see you so sufficient today, Jesus. Pray for those streaming live today, that you'd minister to them right where they are. And that, Lord, you would touch our lives. Continue, O Father, help us to learn what it means to honor you in every way. We give you praise for this in Jesus' name. And everybody sit. So what a Sunday, right, to come around God's word. And what a Sunday to be preaching, particularly about a text like this, considering... All that has happened in the last two weeks in our nation regarding the election, regarding the storming of the Capitol, whether you want to call it an insurrection or not, and the things that have bubbled up underneath it as a result. You know, the last few weeks has been a reminder. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out. It's been an absolute reminder and a revealer of the division that is in our country. You know, I never forget when I was 18 years old, many of you probably remember your first election that you got to vote in. And I remember being 18 years old and stepping up to the ballot, right? And then being able to watch the news. And this is pre-social media, so you had to watch the news all day. 
to get all of your reports. And I remember seeing the division physically with my own eyes in the first election. Now, I don't know if there's any better way to do it, but if you just think about the way we even report the results as a nation, it lends itself to making more hostility. You say, Craig, what do you mean? I literally could now look on every screen and device. I could see with my own eyes the division that took place on the map itself. So if you're looking at the map, it's all blue, and then we go into red, and then we maybe hit a little blue here, and then we're really, really red, and then we move up and we're all blue. And I could see, you know, even at 18 years old, just the, the, the absolute hostility and division on the visual diagram of what we call the election night map. You know, as I've been seeing it again over the last few weeks, I was reminded again of just how fractured we are. It's almost as if... We are living in two separate countries. And that's honestly what it feels like. We are so deeply divided among ideological and cultural and philosophical lines. I never forget on election night results. I saw this tweet a few weeks back on election night. And when I saw this tweet, I thought, man, that's the text I'm going to preach today, right? I mean, this is literally the, the passage Jesus is talking about. This is from Michael Ware, where Michael Ware said this. He said, here's what I'm sure of after yesterday. We cannot continue to operate as if half the country does not exist. We can't continue to operate like that. We are split down the middle, split down the middle. It's where we are in our democracy, in our republic today. And you know, I started thinking about just the reality of Jesus's statement because it's so true. We find ourselves today in what we call the divided states of America. And heartbreakingly so, so much of this has bled over into the church, right? I expect it to be in the world, but it's now heartbreakingly so bled over into the church. And I just be honest with you, it feels like in my 15 years of pastoring, maybe I don't feel this is an overstatement, in my 15 years of pastoring, I've never experienced as much division inside the church as I have the last few years. Not just the culture we live in, but in the actual church. And honestly, in some ways, it, feel like, it feels like maybe the church might actually be more divided than the culture itself, especially in this last few weeks. So when we look at the words of Jesus, when he's talking uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, this Matthew chapter 5 passage is out of the Sermon on the Mount, and what he's doing here is he's laying before us a constitution. This is the Christian constitution. And this Christian constitution lays before us a pattern of what we call disruptive discipleship. Disruptive discipleship, meaning if we honestly hear Jesus' words and live them the way he wants us to live them, it will disrupt our life patterns. Are, we, are you with me this morning? It will change the way we live. It will change the way we think. It will change the way we interact with one another. It's a disruptive discipleship plan. And as I've been thinking about it, we have to allow Jesus' vision of peace to break into our cultural moment. That's our call as the body of Christ, believers in Jesus. That we have to allow the vision of Jesus' peace break, to break into our cultural moment. I think it's safe to say, and honestly, again, no overstatement, we may need peace right now more than any other time in our lifetimes. Now, I don't want to exaggerate it today, okay? We're, I'm going to show you some historical examples. We are nowhere near divided like the way that the early church operated in the culture they were in, okay? We'll, we'll see that in a minute. We're not even close. But, but, I, but I, I do want to say we might need peace more than any other time we've needed peace in our lifetimes. We need peace, peace. One commentator has said this. He said the scarcity, I love this, of peace has prompted someone to suggest that peace is that glorious moment in history when everyone stops to reload. With all the avowed and well-intentioned efforts for, for peace in modern times, few people would claim that the world or any significant part of it is more peaceful now than 100 years ago. Now, listen, Christians in this moment, followers of Jesus, we bring something to bear in all of this madness. We bring something to bear in all of the division. We bring something to bear in the midst of this hostility. In fact, the Bible itself tells us we serve a God of peace. The Bible itself describes God, Yahweh, Adonai, our Lord, as the God of peace. 
Now, let me make a quick point here, all right? Because sometimes I think when I start down these roads of conversation, people immediately begin to think that I am espousing some view that says you cannot differ or that you can actually have unity and diversity. Hear me very clearly. We're going to keep hearing calls for unity from our politicians over the next few weeks. I'm not so sold that that's actually what we need. I think we need something bigger than unity. It's called peace, okay? It's called peace. Now, hear me, hear me. When people call for unity, normally what that means, particularly in our divided world, what that means is unity around whatever messenger is speaking and whatever they believe. That's what unity means. And not any view that differs from that. So what we really don't need in America is unity. What we need is civility. We need people who are non-jerks. Okay, that's really what we need. We need people who know how to, how to not be so loud, if I could just be honest. I'm not even talking about from the church standpoint. I'm talking about from citizenship. We just need non-jerks. Jesus, think about this, didn't pray in John 17 for the unity of the world. He didn't pray for the unity of America. He prayed for unity of believers that are in and around the truth. Okay, That's the only thing Jesus prayed for. He didn't pray in John 17 for the unity of nations. He prayed for the unity of the church. The unity of his followers. And it's interesting when you study the scriptures that it becomes very apparent God is a God of peace. It is central not only to who he is, but it's central to what he's about. Listen to me, church. There are over 400 references in the pages of scripture to the peace of God or to God caring about peace. God espousing a view, a robust view of peace. It's one of the central themes in all of the Bible. If you think about it, the Bible opens with peace. The Bible closes with peace. And between the opening and the closing is what? God trying to break into humanity and bring peace. God's trying to bring peace. One of my favorite uh, theologians, Cornelius Plantinga, and if you want a voice, you want a prophetic voice to read in our hostile times, Cornelius is your man. Cornelius Plantinga begins to describe peace, what he calls the Old Testament shalom, in a very compelling way. In fact, it's probably my favorite biblical definition of shalom, at least that I have come across. He said, biblical peace, the peace that God is talking about, is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. That's good enough to read again. The, the, the peace Jesus alludes to in Matthew 5, 9 is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Now that is a robust vision of what I call whole life flourishing. That means there's nobody on the planet, there's no people group on the planet that's not involved in this kind of robust vision. This is a flourishing vision of human life. It's the kind of peace that God talks about in scripture and it's the kind of peace that Jesus alludes to in Matthew 5 and 9. Now this passage, hear me, hear me, we're going to read it again. But when we read it, I want you to understand what's happening on the Sermon on the Mount within the minds and hearts of those that are listening, okay? You've got to understand the context that Jesus is ministering in to realize how disruptive these words are from our Savior. For the Lord to have the audacity to say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. It's a lot of audacity, okay? I want us to get away for the next few moments from the temptation as 21st century Westerners to dismiss the Beatitudes, to dismiss the Sermon on the Mount as what I call simple little platitude statements of another time, another place that have no power and have no real strength in a day like ours. Really, when we study the Sermon on the Mount, church, listen, that's not just some idealized version of life. Jesus' words are actually provocative and they're powerful. And they're to convict us. We're to read them and not dismiss them as platitudes of a, of, a, of a previous century. We are to really embrace them, understand them, meditate on them, and think about them. They are powerful. And I believe more now than ever, Jesus' words can break into our cultural moment and disrupt our cultural, cultural moment with an alternative vision. You say, Craig, what is that alternative vision? It's the vision of God's kingdom, not the vision of donkeys and not the vision of elephants. It's the vision of the Lamb of God, an alternative vision in our reality. 
So this is the context of peacemaking. Now hear me. The crowd that was standing on the side of the hill that day, that crowd that was at the Sermon on the Mount was a very, very diverse crowd that was loaded with all kinds of political expectation about who the Messiah was and what he was going to do. Please hear me. In Jesus' day, the Jews did not want a theoretical peace. Jews did not want a theological peace. They were not satisfied with Jesus to say, hey, you're just, oh, you're uniting my soul to God. Thank you so much. They were not cool with that. They were not looking for theological peace. They were not looking for theoretical, philosophical peace. They're looking for a warrior, a, 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 a literally warring warrior to come and institute a tangible peace by this military leader who would bring them the safety and would bring them the comfort that their hearts desired. Now hear me, there's probably thousands of them on the side of the hill and they had just heard about the Maccabean Revolution. Now you don't, maybe, maybe let me catch you up on the Maccabean Revolution. The Maccabean dynasty existed in what we call the intertestamental period. 400 years passed between the end of Malachi and the entrance of Jesus. That's what we call the intertestamental period. If you grew up Roman Catholic, you've got all kinds of books in your Bible that were written in what we call the intertestamental period. Now, what happened in the intertestamental period? There was a period where Jewish guerrilla warriors, Jewish fighters, they called them freedom fighters, they had risen up to overthrow the powers of the day and they had established a period of peace in Israel. And when they established that period of peace and prosperity, they were, they were under their own, for the first time in, in centuries, their own sovereign rule. And finally, for the Jews, the law of God was honored. So these people that are on the hillside long to get back to that. They're not looking to Jesus to set their souls free. They're looking to Jesus to go overturn the Roman emperor. They want Jesus to liberate them from Roman oppression. So they long to get back to that. They wanted a leader like that. And they had such a deep hatred for the Romans who were just literally the latest oppressor that was holding them back. In fact, let me take it a step further. When Jesus was given on the Sermon on the Mount, you know where he gave it? He gave it there on the Mount of Beatitudes. Guess what? They all had a recent memory that even during the lifetime of Jesus, we're not talking about hundreds of years, we're talking about 10, about maybe 12 years earlier. The, in the lifetime of Jesus, the Romans came into that same mountain. They destroyed two cities called Sepphoris and Emmaus. You know that in scripture. And they took 30,000 Jewish people into slavery in one day and they went into Emmaus and took 2,000 Jewish men and marched them into Jerusalem and crucified them in one day. Now, I know we look at the scenes two Wednesdays ago and we think, yeah, and I'm not undermining eight deaths or nine deaths or 10 deaths, but we are nowhere near the context of what Jesus is speaking into. Do you think they were cool with these words? Blessed are the peacemakers. You just killed 2,000 of our men and crucified them. You just took 30,000 of our people and sold them into slavery. These Romans, who are these Romans? And Jesus now stands up on this hillside as the embodiment, right? God in the flesh. And he declares to them, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. Now, I want you to think about this politically charged, violently motivated, longing for an overthrow of Rome to establish a kingdom of peace. And then imagine Jesus <laughs> standing up right in the middle of that and saying, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Telling us, if I'm not a peacemaker, I have a different father. There's no other way to get around it. I'm from a different father. Because the father calls peacemakers children of God. You imagine when they heard that, they would have projected so much of their own understanding. All of these cultural understandings onto the idea of peace. So Jesus has to clarify what he's talking about. Aren't you glad he does clarify what he's talking about? And he begins to divulge. Now in our day, too, living where we live... When we talk about peace or peacemaking as followers of Jesus, 
we can fall into talking about two kinds of peace. Everybody say two kinds. Now, I'm going to first talk about what I call the negative kind of peace. But it's the kind of peace that America knows. In my opinion, the only kind of peace America knows. The first kind of peace is what we call cultural peace. I'm going to call the cultural peace negative peace. That's what I want to call negative peace. What is cultural peace? It's the absence of conflict. This vision of peace says this. If I get rid of the problem or I get rid of the power structure, peace will ensue. So the goal of cultural peace is to simply remove the source of agitation. The goal of cultural peace is to remove the source of conflict. Now hear hear me. Look, look church. The problem with this sort of peace is that if you don't have a positive vision of peace, meaning you don't know what you want out of peace, you only know what you don't want. Listen to me. When you only have a negative side of peace, you will turn any threat into a serious threat. You will turn all threats and we will end up with what we have in our culture today. Hear me. You don't have to agree with me. I would say the most toxic thing in American culture today comes as a result of negative peace. You know what it is? It's called cancel culture. It's called cancel culture. So when you live in a negative peace world, that is a cultural peace understanding, what happens is anybody who seems to bring any sense of hint of real or perceived violence They have to be eliminated and they have to be silenced and they have to be shut up and they have to have no context to have any kind of influence. Why? Because they could threaten the peace and they could threaten the status quo in any environment. Okay? Now hear me. There is no place for cancel culture in the kingdom of God. I want to say it again. I don't think Christians in 2021 should be canceling anybody. We don't have the right to cancel people of whom the blood of Jesus was shed for. We don't have that right, okay? So what I'm saying is that Christians, we long for redemption. And redemption is a greater and deeper work than cancellation. It's a much deeper work than just cancel culture. I was reading a story just this last week about a mom named Julia. She volunteered in her, in her son's kindergarten class um, during the holidays. And, and she was just a good mom. She thought it would be good to be involved and be an involved parent in her kindergarten class. So the kids, as she was sitting there that day of volunteer, the kids were playing musical chairs. But the problem is there was no music going on. And she realized, well, listen, I can get involved. So I'm going to start getting my phone and I'm going to start playing some music. She said, I'll do it. She said, well, it's Christmas. So I'm going to play Christmas music. This just happened in December. And she said, well, I, I've got to be politically correct. We're in a public school, so I'm not going to, pray, I'm not going to play Silent Night, okay? Because that's like a Christian song. And, and she thought, you know what I'll do? I'll play Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And so she got out her phone and started playing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And the kids are having a great time. And a few minutes passed, and someone came over. And they said, excuse me, ma'am, I don't know what you think you've just done. She said, what do you mean, what did I just done? She said, you can't play Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer in our classroom. And she said, why not? She said, well, the Huffington Post realized that the lyrics of this song are, are very, very problematic. And it's no longer appropriate to play Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Because this is a story about bullying uh, the reindeer species. And particularly bullying one reindeer. This is a true story. All this happened in America. I know we think it's funny. This thing, just let me, let me go on with the story. And, and we're now bullying. What they're doing in this song is they're bullying one single reindeer that was different from the others. And so as a result, in our school, we've made the decision that we have banned the song Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And she looked at this lady and she said, are you kidding me? She said, do you know the redemptive part? What about the nose thing? You know the nose thing? This is a song of redemption. You know, like we're teaching these kids. Rede- you remember the nose thing? Rudolph with your nose so bright. Won't you guide my son? I mean, and... Listen, this this got so much heat that 8,000 people responded on Twitter. And they called, many of them, for the total dismantling of this woman's life and her children for oppressing children in public schools by playing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Now, if you want to realize and make some sense of that, let me give you a fabulous author. He's an American social psychologist. His name is Jonathan Haidt. You've probably heard me mention him a few times. He wrote a book years ago, several years back ago, called The Coddling of the American Mind. It's one of my best reads in in 2019. And and Jonathan Haidt does something really powerful here. He says, he, he has a concept that he talks about how peace is established in cultures. And here's what he said. He said there's two forms of peace. He said number one is what we call common humanity justice. 
And common humanity justice is where we actually work, means we're working on the problems that affect all of us. This is the kind of justice, Jonathan says, that has existed in every redemptive society in the history of the world. It's a justice, by the way, that we should be involved in because it stops legitimate injustice. It literally stops and goes against a legitimate evil oppression. But then he said this. Now, is there anything more prophetic? Okay? And Jonathan does claim to be a believer. He said this. He said, this problem with modern society is we don't have that anymore. We have common enemy identity politics. And he says, this means peace in America can only be achieved by identifying an enemy defining yourself as a victim and opposing anyone else against you. Have there ever been more clear prophetic statement? Identify an enemy. Don't start with the oppression. Identify with an enemy. Call yourself a victim and then oppose anything else against you. See, the problem with that though, listen, is that you don't actually have a vision of what you want. You only have a vision of what you don't want. Right? You only have a vision of the negative side. So this ultimately leads to what we call dehumanization and demonization. And Nelson Mandela, which by the way, Nelson Mandela knows a lot about these dynamics, doing the social change he did in South Africa. Here's what Nelson Mandela says. He says, when we dehumanize and demonize Joe Biden or Trump, we abandon the possibility of peacefully resolving our differences and we seek to justify violence against any other party that's not ours. I added some ad lib there. I put it in our modern context, okay? See, the dehumanization and the demonization of anyone who is not like us or doesn't hold the philosophical, and what happens is that it ultimately leads to this reality of not honoring and reveling in the humanity of another person. So this vision of peace, this negative peace, it removes, watch this, any threat of oppression or conflict And I want to say, this is the peace that's pushed in our society today. This is the peace. It's just my observation. doesn't have to be held by all. But it is my observation. It is amazing the violence that people will commit in the name of peace. And it is amazing the hate people will show in the name of love. And it is amazing the oppression people will exert in the name of justice. For what? This negative vision of peace. Hear me, Christians cannot afford to espouse that negative vision of peace. As followers of Jesus, we must embody a different way. We must embody. As much as I don't want to do it, and as much as I want to go put my head in the sand like an ostrich, I don't think we understand the damage repair we have to do to an upcoming generation with what this election did to Christianity. And its perception in our culture. The dehumanization and the demonization of anyone that's against me. Now, here's the good news. In contrast to this cultural vision of peace, which is negative peace, I started thinking about this beautiful vision of kingdom peace. Kingdom peace. Positive peace. And what is that? It's the inclusion and the presence of something that goes beyond just the absence of conflict. Let's look back at a text, James 3.17. Notice what the text says. But the wisdom from above is first pure than peaceable. You hear that? Watch this. God's vision of peace, it comes down in pure, pure form. And then guess what it does? It brings peace to everything it touches. Are you with me? It's pure from heaven and then it brings peace. So, so watch this. In the midst of all of the tension in our nation right now, how do we become faithful 167ers? How do we honor God in our current political tension, in our reality? I was thinking back to Dr. King's vision of what he called the beloved community. And for many of you, you're very familiar with Dr. King. Maybe others are not as familiar with Dr. King. So let me talk about Dr. King for a minute. Dr. King embodied and he envisioned something that he wrote about a lot called the the beloved community. And in this beloved community, he was trying to faithfully hold up in his moment of tension and racial injustice. He was trying to hold up a vision, listen, not just of removing racial oppression, but also establishing what he called the beloved community. And sometimes when we study Dr. King, we study him as if he just had a one agenda just to eliminate racial oppression. It was so much more than racial oppression. It was about the establishment 
of human flourishing. He called it the beloved community. This is what he wrote about that. Let's listen to Dr. King's words. We have before us the glorious opportunity to inject a new dimension of love into the veins of our civilization. There is still a voice crying out in terms that echo across the generations saying, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. This love might well be the salvation of our civilization. So he's got this prophetic witness. He's got this prophetic reality and kingdom vision of a robust human flourishing. A powerful statement. And here's what I love about King. You know what he said? He said, if you can't find this beloved community, you know what? It's your responsibility to make it. That's what I love about Dr. King. He said, if you don't have a church like this, a a people around you that's a beloved community, it is your job and responsibility to create it. And his vision was one of reconciliation and redemption. And he said, the key, the key is to manifest Jesus's vision of agape love. Everybody say agape love. That's not phileo love. That is unconditional, eternal love. Again, he says this, next slide. Agape does not begin by discriminating between worthy and unworthy people. Or inequalities that people possess. It begins by loving others for their sakes. It is an entirely neighbor regarding concern for others. Which discovers the neighbor in every man it meets. Therefore agape makes no distinction between friends and enemy. It is directed towards both. Sobering words. Agape is love seeking to preserve and create Peaceful community. He's arguing for the presence of reconciliation, the positive side of prosperity and joy and life. Again, what Cornelius Plantinga calls the webbing together of humans and God and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. This, y'all, is a vision of what kingdom peace looks like. This is a vision of what the peace Jesus alludes to actually looks like. I remind us again, though we've heard it so many times, church, if you're like me, the more you hear it, it loses its confrontive power. Don't let it lose its confrontive power. Jesus said in John chapter 13, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We live in a moment where there is an incredible urgency around the establishment of peace. Now, now that we've talked about negative peace and positive peace, I want to move to the source of peace. Let's talk about the source of peace. The source of peace. How do we go about building this beloved community? How can we do that? What actually has the power to bring groups that are opposed to one another together in flourishing peace? Well, the Bible makes this extraordinary claim. Are you ready, church? This doesn't happen through politics. It only comes through a person. That person is Jesus Christ himself. He is the source of peace. Look at Ephesians 2.14. For he himself is our peace. Jesus Christ himself is our peace. The way the early church was able to bring together people from every conceivable background is because they had a vision of life rooted in the lordship of Jesus. When you look at how Jesus brought people together from different backgrounds, y'all, it was downright extraordinary. I wish you'd go tell somebody in your workplace this week. You want to know the genius of Jesus? People, you you want to really know the genius of Jesus? The genius of Jesus is that he brought people together from every conceivable background and united them on something greater. This is not a popular message today. I can understand. He was able to have zealots and tax collectors in the same disciple group. That's a whole lot more opposed than Dems and Republicans. Okay? These are people that have deep disdain for one another. These are people that literally, philosophically, philosophically, ideologically on paper would have been enemies. Now think about this. Jesus loved the poor, and yet he rebuked the religious leaders for basically robbing them and turning them into destitute widows, while at the same time, his ministry was supported by wealthy women. Think about Jesus. No one in history has been like Jesus. 
He had the inclusivity and a total inclusive place for women that nobody in the Roman Empire had. He allowed women in close to him, and yet these rich women supported his ministry, yet he looks down upon these rich people because they're turning these widows or turning these ladies into destitute widows. Like who in history has been able to bring together so much diversity and unite it together? I would say nobody but Jesus. Nobody but Jesus. So our call is to see that this community will be formed around a person. Everybody say a person. Now let me define something for you real quick. I'm gonna define the word culture for you. A king asked me this week via text, he said, how would you define a cult? Okay, let me, let me define culture for you. Culture has two ideas. Culture number one, it means that something's put at the center. That's this word, Greek word we call cultus. Now listen, here's how you build a culture. You put something in the center. It has to be either a person or an idea It has to be in the center and has to be venerated in worship so that everything can revolve around it. That's what the first step of a culture is. So something has to go to the center. The second uh, phrase, the second part of the word culture is that it is a term that talks about farming or cultivation of the soil. So watch this. Are you ready? A culture means something is put in the center and then something is farmed and harvested around it. And then you get the fruit and the crop that produces the dynamics of that particular culture so that now when you eat the fruit of what's going around whatever's in the center you taste the fruit of that culture that's what a culture is Christians in the 21st century are making the claim that in order for us to have the kind of culture where peace and justice and delight exist then the right thing has to be at the center we can't afford to miss the 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 centerpiece In other words, the thing that is venerated in worship has to be at the center to produce the right fruit that comes up around it. What is that center? None other than Jesus himself. It has to be Jesus and not our ideologies and not our philosophical political preferences. It has to be Jesus. It has to be Jesus. We were bought with the blood of Jesus. We are literally venerate. We are worshiping the person at the center. You say, what has Jesus done? Look at Ephesians 2, 14 and 15 again. Notice what Jesus has done. This is the beauty. He said, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier. He divided, divided the wall of hostility because he set aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Now look, leave that up there for a moment. We gloss over phrases like this. But I want you to hear me. At the time, the people sitting in Ephesus reading these words from the Apostle Paul would have been shocked by the extent to which Jesus was, can I say it this way, re-engineering the social dynamics of his day. First of all, the Jews had a disdain and disgust for the Gentiles. We've read before in here many times, haven't we, on Sundays? What did the Jews call the Gentiles? D-O-G-S's, dogs. That's what they called them. They couldn't stand them. They had a, a, a strong bias against them, okay? They just believed they were enemies of God. They believed the Gentiles were full of idolatry. They believed they were full of paganism. So there was rela- uh, racial and there was religious tension between Jews and Gentiles. But, 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 but watch this, keep it up there. There was also hostility between the Roman Empire and people. So this is the city of Ephesus, right? The city of Ephesus was dominated by a Greek god, her na- uh, the, the, the Greek god named Artemis. And she was the regional deity. And so what happens is, much like America, it was a melting pot. When people came in from different places, all of these different people had regional gods, right? So you didn't have the same god. You had these regional gods and these ethnic tensions. And in Ephesus, more so than even America, you had a class system. So it was like this simmering pot of hostility, simmering. And so people would cling to their tribal identities. But now Jesus has come. And when Jesus came along and torn down and he tore all of those barriers, so the, no longer is the de- definitive reality for a person's life their tribal identity. For in fact, they are now part of the new humanity brought together in Jesus Christ. The tribal identities had to leave. The tribal identities had to be surrendered. They are now a new humanity, united under the lordship of Jesus. Listen to me, church. I know it's not popular, but it's the blood of Jesus shed on the cross that unites people. 
The blood of Jesus is still powerful enough to take people from all different backgrounds and unite them together. Why? Because the, the ground is level at the foot of Jesus Christ. The cross levels the playing field and says we are together in this. We are a new humanity. Listen to the words and let Jesus' words confront your heart again today. He said in Ephesians 2, verse 15, he goes on. Look what he says. Next slide. Powerful, powerful statements. He set aside in his flesh the law. His purpose was to create in himself one new kainos in Greek. One new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their, their horizontal hostility. He put it to death. In his body. He put it to death when he died on the cross. Listen to me. The righteousness of God has now been established among us. So that the righteousness of God can be distributed between us. Between us. We are vertically right with God. Therefore the hostility can now be removed. In the way we relate to one another. That's the kingdom. Vision of peace. And I want you to see this because we don't like talking about violence and blood in these terms. But the big idea is this, church. It costs God something to do this. It costs God something to be a peacemaker. Hear me. Establishing biblical peace, you won't hear this on the news, is often at the cost of the person who wants to see it established. They got to pay something. They got to pay something. There's a price tag to biblical peace. The peace of God, listen to me, established with sinners costs God the death of his son. So if we're going to see peace among other people, we ourselves are going to have to pay the price as peacemakers to do this. Church, in 2015, I had the wonderful privilege of, of traveling to the Holy Land. I got to go to Israel on a trip called uh, for a global congress. And there was one portion of the trip that was so disorienting to me. It messed me up. Because we got to go and we got to visit all the traditional holy sites, but we were going for a global congress called Empower 21 where spirit-filled believers from all over the world were gathered together in Israel at the same time. And it was a powerful trip. And they had these little breakout sessions. And these breakout sessions, watch this, were designed to help uh, Western evangelical pastors get a more nuanced understanding of what's happening in Israel. Because sometimes we just see it so simple, like the conflicts over there, and we just see them as, as just little simple conflicts. So they were trying to give us Westerners a little more nuanced understanding of what's happening in the Middle East. Now, you know the Middle East is one of the most conflicted areas in the world, right? It has been since uh, Ishmael, hasn't it? Right? So we know it is a very conflicted area. And there are claims, and there are counterclaims. And then there are claims, and there are counterclaims. And we got to go into Israel, and we, it was a powerful time. The hostility, obviously, in this area goes so deep, it feels like, in some ways, it will never be resolved, right? But it's simmering and simmering and simmering, and then something happens, and it boils over again, right? And then we see it on our news, and it simmers and simmers and simmers, and something boils over, and it happens again. And you have the Jewish people who feel oppressed, and then you have the Palestinians who feel oppressed, and they're trying to share the same piece of land, and Palestinian suicide bombers would come into theaters in Israel and they would blow up the children, the Israeli children, right? They would kill the moms and dads' kids. And then they would go into bus stops. You've seen it on the news. And they would, Palestinian bombers would blow up bus stops and kill Israelis. Then, then on the other side, we would, we would bump into people who feel totally oppressed and, and affected by the reality of you know, what's going on. And there were, on the other side, Palestinians who had... Literally, their kids shot by the IDF, right? The Israeli forces killed the Palestinian kids. And you had these cases of profound wounds. So you know what they did to us Western pastors? Talking about rock our world. They took us into what they call peacemaking meetings. And so we got to now be the, the, the gallery, so to speak, of watching what was happening. It was very disorienting. It was impossible for me to come back and try to relate and, and relay to my wife even what I saw because some of the most powerful meetings happened where one particular, there was a man there whose daughter was 14 years old and was killed and shot by an Israeli soldier. He was Palestinian in his car. And so he sat there and he just watched his daughter bleed out out of her head in his lap. And he couldn't get her to stop bleeding. This 14-year-old just, and he's telling the story. And he could get no justice. You know what the Israeli soldier said? It was an accident. He could get no justice. Now, he has every reason to bull so hot that he would blow somebody's brains out. 
He could get no justice whatsoever. Then in the same room, you had a mom whose son was killed by a suicide bomber, an Israeli mom by a suicide bomber. And the, this Israeli son was just trying to make a life. He was, just trying to, he was a teen, young teenager trying to make a life in Israel. And they facilitate, look church, these meetings where in the same room is the mother of this son and the father of this other daughter and their friends, y'all. They're friends. And people are weeping their way through these meetings. We, Western pastors are weeping their way through these meetings because these people in Israel kept saying, if we don't forgive one another, the cycle will continue. And I have every reason to be mad, but I refuse to allow you to be an enemy in my life. And these mom and this dad are weeping on one another, hugging one another, making peace with one another. And they kept using this phrase over and over. We refuse to be enemies because of this. And I started thinking about the level of pain you have to go through to be a peacemaker. I started thinking about what Jesus' prophetic words are here to be a real peacemaker. The personal cost of pain. When they had every right to be angry and yet they forgave each other and it shook me. There are no words to articulate the cost they paid to have a tiny, what I call microculture of peace in the middle of conflict. And then you know what I did? I came back to America and people are leaving churches because they don't like the worship music. People are leaving churches because the building is not ideal for them. I'm like, are you kidding me? We are so spoiled in the West. We are spoiled brats. The, the small little levels of division that exist over trivial things in our culture. And we can't cross the enemy line to create peace because it's not my desire. It's not my philosophy. There's a whole level, a whole level of peacemaking. And we have to realize that true peace is established at a deep, deep cost. It costs God his son. It will cost us something if we're going to be peacemakers. But the fruit of it, here it is, church. The fruit of it is a new humanity. Go back to verse, uh, Ephesians 2, verse uh, 17, 18. It says, the Greek word here is, is fascinating to me. It says that he came to establish a new humanity. And that word humanity is one Greek word called kainos. And I went and looked it up this week. You know what it means? It means a brand new thing. In fact, the Greek writers didn't have a word for it. So they just used this word like it was an invention. The new humanity is an invention of God. That's how new it is. We're something altogether different when we come to know Jesus. When the blood of Jesus cleanses us, Paul goes on to articulate this. He said, as Pastor Chad just quoted, it's neither male nor female. It's neither what? Jew nor Gentile. It's neither slave nor free. If you were to walk into a New Testament church and behold the peace that had been made through these difficult groups, it was the most progressive vision of human rights ever seen up to that point in human history. There is no other environment in the Roman Empire where people would gather like this. And you want to know why Christianity grew so quickly? We want to know why Christianity spread like wildfire because there's no other environment where people could be so diabolically different and opposed and be united in Jesus. So we have a huge need for peace in our day and it's only Jesus that can bring it about. So that means, listen, if we're going to take Jesus' call and we're going to take Jesus' death seriously, we have to hear his exhortation and our place and time to be people who make peace. Everybody say peace. We gotta be peacemakers. The need of the hour is for followers of Jesus Christ to be peacemakers. Now I know and realize there are people that are probably watching streaming live or maybe we'll be listening to this message later via podcast and it's very apparent that we have non-Christians that are listening in and I just wanna tell you today, I'll say it with the utmost sincerity. If you're a non-Christian today or you're in this room, you better hear me. I want to say to you, you will never have peace in the world around you until you have peace in your heart with God. You won't have any peace out here until peace happens in here. Thomas Merton said it this. He said, we're not at peace with others because we're not at peace with ourselves. And we're not at peace with ourselves because we're not at peace with God. So it's just a vicious cycle. There has to be, hear me church, an eternal reorientation to steal the inner storms and conflict in your life so that we can have a peaceful center out of which we can operate 
And I'm all for the apps on your phone. If you deal with anxiety, I'm all for the practice of mindfulness. But hear me, there is no app you can put on and breathe a certain way for 10 minutes to get this kind of biblical peace. Are you hearing me? I'm talking about you have a deep existential knowledge and understanding you are right with your creator. That's why we see so much conflict in Western culture because so few people have that. I'm talking about a deep, absolutely existential reality that I'm right. The shame is gone. The guilt is gone. The hiding is gone. The numbing is gone. The blaming game is gone. I'm right with God. I'm right with God so I can be right with others. And there's just this peace with God through Jesus Christ. Heard of an older man in our own city, Woodstock, Georgia, from a pastor friend of mine. This older man, very well-respected Christian. It was the day after the election in November, and he came to his church to pray and exercise. When he came into his church to pray and exercise, it's because in the winter months he loves to walk, and this church has a lot of square footage. And so he was coming to pray. He's got his AirPods in, and he walks the building, and he just prays in the Spirit. This man is a an older saint in Jesus, and he just prays in the spirit. And he comes into the church in the winter and walks laps. So his pastor bumped into him in the hallway. And his pastor bumped into him and said, hey, man, what's going on? And it was, again, it was the day after the election. And, you, and the pastor said you could tell the man was tender. He was really, really tender and taken back by what's going on in the USA and the anim- and animosity and all. And he said, he said, Pastor, the Lord woke me up this morning really early. He said, really? He said, yeah. He said, what did he say to you? He said, the Lord said this to me, sir, if you'll give me half the energy you've given to this election, watch what happens in your life. Christians, I'm your pastor. Watch where you give your energy in days like ours. If you gave half Your energy, the Lord said to this man. Half the energy you gave to the election to me, watch what happens to your life. He said, I'm over it. And I love this older man had the the humility to do it. He said, Pastor, I'm over it. He said, I got it. He said, when the Lord speaks to me, I got it. When other people speak to me, I'm hard of hearing. But he said, when the Lord speaks to me, I'm good. I'm not spending another ounce of energy on it. And he said, I'm here to pray. I'm just gonna pray. He said, God took care of me when there's Dems in the presidential office. He said, God took care of me when the Republicans. And God's gonna take care of me now. I don't worship at that altar anymore. I wandered a little bit, Pastor. But I'm gonna tell you, God just said to me, give me half the energy you gave to the election and watch what happens. And can I say to us, church, If we as Christians would get as comfortable sharing the gospel as we are sharing our opinions, we will see a harvest of souls like never before. Like never before. But we have to have peace with God. We need peace with God. I had a dear friend at our last church who had a very violent past. He was one of those guys that you just twitch and he's ready to fight. African-American man, loved the man. He was a, a great friend, but he was, so, I mean, when I say violent past, a violent, violent past. He was a gangbanger, and he said to me, he said, Pastor Craig, this is in 2015, he said, I used to be so violent, I used to be so angry all the time, and he said, the other day something happened to me, and I said, what happened to you? And he said, man, I had someone come up to me at my work and make a horrific racial comment. He said it was a horrific racial comment. And he said, I looked at the man, and I was like, it's 2015, are you kidding me? He's like, are you kidding me? And then he said, something amazing happened to me, Pastor Craig. I said, what happened to you? He said, in the old days, I would have gone to war. I would have made it my objective to take that guy out. He said, but in that moment, standing in my workplace, he said, I looked within. He said, Pastor Craig, it was gone. There was just this deep sense of peace that even produced a compassion for this other dude's ignorance. That's what Jesus does existential peace that I will not be riled up by all this outer outward realities and ideologies that something has he said I was startled by the real world real life difference peace with God makes it makes a difference in your everyday living so to make peace with others you have to have a deep existential inner peace that only comes with being right with God. The second thing, and I'll end here, is the church must be a place of peace in a culture of conflict, a place of peace. 
It's been said, but it bears repeating. A divided church cannot heal a divided world. It takes a united church to heal a divided world. That's why it says in Ephesians, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. As I've been pastoring these last few years, church, I've seen such an increase in relationships falling apart, an increase in conflict. Maybe you're here today and as a parent, you have a conflict with one of your kids and it, it's just status quo right now. You're both dug in and the ego is entrenched. It's entrenched in being right. And it's like neither side wants to give. And you are dug in on both sides. Maybe the Holy Spirit's saying to you as a parent today, just cross that divide and make the peace. Stop worrying about being right. Stop worrying about being right. Just make, make the peace. Just make. Just make the peace with your child. Maybe there's drama in your marriage and it's war. And quarantine was that beautiful romantic time where everybody would be really close together in the the house as a joke. Maybe it's stuff from the past that's coming up because you didn't have to go to work every day and you've never dealt with it. Make the peace. We need peace in our most fundamental relationships. And I'm sure that as I'm talking about peacemaking, you love it for everyone else, but you don't love it for you. Here's what I've learned about peacemaking. We love to point out how others should make peace, but it's hard to believe it for ourselves. And one of the great fears, and I want you to hear me, is that we think we have to give up our convictions, give up our principles, or give up our perspective. Look, I'm not saying peacemaking is about producing uniformity. Are you hearing me? Don't mistake me today. It is not about producing uniformity. It's about unity and diversity. I, think, I can't think of a more beautiful example of this than Cornell West and Robert George right now. Cornell West and Robert George. Robert George is the director of the James Madison program at Princeton University. He's a conservative by every stretch of the imagination. Cornell West is a professor of the practice of public philosophy at Harvard. And you look at these photos. You look at these photos. These are your most unlikely friends on the planet. You could not get people as far left and as far right. And they are political and philosophical enemies. If you put them on paper, they're enemies. But they go around to different universities. You know why they do that? To paint a picture of how even among deep differences, there can be unity. There can be unity and diversity. And they've built a wonderful friendship. Can we just hear just the word? Just listen to what Robert George says. This is what he said. Friendship is fundamentally volitional. It means you've got to make a choice. It's the willing, the good of the other for the sake of the other. Where we fail is when we lose track of the other person's humanity. Trump supporters in the room, can I tell you, Joe Biden is not your enemy. Let me tell you, Joe Biden supporters, Donald Trump is not your enemy. You revel in the other person's humanity. If you don't, you dehumanize and you demonize. That's the reality. You dehumanize and you demonize. And he says, you've got to revel in the other. Look at what Cornell West said about his friend. He said, I love this brother and love is never reducible to politics. No, no, no. Just like friendship is never reducible to political agreement. You learn how to revel in somebody's humanity. You learn how to revel in the imago dei. You revel in the image of God in another person. And that's the difference, to see them as humanity, to choose friendship. And this should be the normal for the state of the church. Volitional agape, other-centered care, and then reveling in the image of God in other people. If there's conflict in your life with someone, I wanna urge you to cross the divide. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3.11. Look what he said. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Look, 2020 wasn't the year we had all hoped for. But you know what I'm saying right now about 2021? I'm saying, God, how do I live in 2021? And what could be the silver lining of this season? Can I propose to you what could be one of the silver linings of these two years in our nation's history? Reconciled relationships could be the most important part of 2021. The chance to reconcile. And finally, it's our call, come on Casey, to call all peacemakers to heal the world. To heal the world. We often forget that Ephesians 6 says our feet are to be shod with the gospel of peace. 
That means everywhere we go, guess what? We leave an imprint of peace because we follow the Prince of Peace. That means everywhere we go, we're leaving peace because our feet are shod with peace. The preparation of the gospel of peace. And there's a divide in our nation right now, y'all, and people are just lobbing insults on social media. They're throwing things at one another even in the streets. It's so easy to smear the other side. Kamala Harris. Ha, ha, ha. You're the first female vice president. But you can't claim it since your party doesn't recognize genders. Ha, 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 And then we smear them. And then it's easy to come over here. Donald Trump. If you voted for Donald Trump in 2016, you are 100% unequivocally racist. There's no other way. And we just smear that side. And here's what happens. Christians do the same thing the world does. And it's like my heart is like, it's so easy to smear. But there's no place for Jesus followers to do that. We're called to make peace. Huge conflicts in our nation. And peacemaking is having the courage to cross the chasm and initiate peace terms. Some of you know my favorite example of this in all of church history besides the cross is St. Francis of Assisi. St. Francis of Assisi in the Fifth Crusade. Now, if you don't know, in the 1200s, it's the darkest hour of, of Christian history. When we, the church went through the Crusades, what we call the Holy Wars. And in September 1219, St. Francis of Assisi had wanted to go on the Crusades, not as a tourist, but he wanted to go see if in the midst of the church's Holy Wars, he could usher in peace. So he goes to the Catholic cardinal and he gets permission to go to the battle line, the crusade, the fifth crusade. And he shows up at the crusade right when both sides are dug in. And it was amazing when you study this story because one side you had the Muslim army with 80,000 Muslims ready to destroy the Christian knights. On the other side, you had 40,000 Christian knights ready to go to battle against the Muslims. And he shows up to this and he says, this is total insanity. And he don't have a bullhorn to get everybody's attention. He said, how on earth can God's kingdom be ushered in in the midst of this kind of fighting? How is this God's kingdom? So he walks up and down the front of the troops, like, on the fr- like right where they're about to meet to the battle. And they think, the Christians, he can't go to the enemy line. They think he is a priest trying to offer God a blessing to them to, to root the, the Muslims. And no one hears his calls for peace. All he's doing is trying to call for peace. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. No one hears. He goes and appeals to the cardinal. He says, before you all get in this battle, the cardinal over the Christian knights, he says, he says, would you initiate some terms of peace? And the cardinal said, no way. We will never rescind. We will never back down. We will never retreat. We will never surrender. So a battle ensues, and guess what happens? The Christians are historically rooted. They're destroyed. They're, they're routed. And the Muslim leader, the sultan of Egypt, the Muslim leader says, hey, I want to offer a truce to you Christians. You are outnumbered. You will never beat us. You have no path to victory. And the cardinal says, no way. I will fight to every one of my men is dead. We're not doing it. We're not rescinding. We're not backing up. And so Francis, and I listen, y'all, if you read the accounts of the fifth crusades, the battlefields had blood up to their knees. That's how many people were killed. And he, he, I mean, literally bodies everywhere. We're talking about bloodshed. And so Francis of Assisi walked through a field of blood snuck through the enemy lines, walks himself through the blood up to his knees, bodies everywhere, sneaks through the enemy lines. The, the, the Egyptian Muslim soldiers capture him and they take him to the Muslim leader. They don't know who he is, but they love his spirit. This is what history records. And something about his spirit said, I'm gonna show this guy favor. So he goes down and, and he sets in before the Sultan of Egypt. And the Sultan of Egypt is so blown away that a Christian would have the courage to come and see their enemy. Like you're actually gonna come behind enemy lines. And he said, hey, St. Francis, what is this philosophy? I don't understand this form of Christianity. The only form of Christianity I understand is a Christianity that wants to kill us because we're Muslims. I don't understand this kind of Christianity. I, I've, never, I've never done, so he gets, the Sultan gets the Muslim scholars together and it leads to a meal. And here is St. Francis of Assisi behind enemy lines talking about King Jesus and Jesus' de- desire for peace. 
And he's talking to these Muslim leaders and the sheik, the sheik of the Muslim faith says, hey, St. Francis, I don't know who you are, but I'm gonna give you land and I'm gonna give you great wealth. Like, wow, right? And Assisi, as you know, took a vow of poverty. So he looks at him, he says, hey, I've tried the money thing before. I didn't really like it. It wasn't really good for my soul. I say no to your money and I say no to your reality. But before I get up and leave, can I urge you to give your life to Jesus Christ, Sultan? And he looks at all the Muslim leaders and philosophers and says, would you surrender your life to Jesus Christ? And they're so moved by Francis of Assisi that they release him to the other side. Now hear me, church. Francis does not stop the crusades. He doesn't stop it. Because one man may not have the power to stop American culture wars. But what he was was a prophetic symbol of Jesus in the midst of the church's darkest hour. And I've had people who are non-believers come to me and say, Pastor Craig, I'm, I'm an atheist. I, what's your answer to this? What about the church's holy wars? And I say, yeah, but what about St. Francis of Assisi who crossed blood knee-high fields to go share the gospel of Jesus with a Muslim sultan? The question, the question is not, does it work? question is what does it mean to follow Jesus in America right now it does not mean does it work it's what does it mean to be faithful to Jesus I don't know what level of agency our one church in Woodstock Georgia has to actually stop the culture wars around us but I know that we can be peacemakers who disrupt the cycles of violence one life one situation at a time by being people who cross the lines and initiate peace. The goal is not, is it effective? The goal is, are we faithful in this city in this moment? Will we make peace? See, the promise is, last slide, if you're a peacemaker, you're gonna be called what? A child of God. And the term there used, child of God, is technon. It's the two most endearing, affectionate terms the Greek writer could use. Because I believe the question God always asks always asking is who has the spirit of my son in Woodstock, Georgia and who's going to make peace who's going to make peace we have to make peace so church I don't know what's ahead hear me I don't know what's going to be in this coming administration the next few weeks or months but as I've said before I can't control that outcome but I can reorient my behavior towards the way of Jesus and we can be people who commit that no matter what the conflict is we will be people who like Jesus, who like St. Francis of Assisi, walk across the violence and we are prophetically remembered in history as those blessed by God as his sons and daughters because we're here to make peace. Look at me, church. Listen to me. Whether you agree or not, the most, to me, urgent question before us American Christians is not whether or not we have the right politics most urgent question is whether or not we have the right Jesus. Because we just don't seem blown away by him anymore. We don't seem satisfied in him anymore. We don't seem floored by him anymore. We freak out every week way too readily. We get angry too easily and the real Jesus settles people. The real Jesus settles us. Settles us. Blessed are peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.